Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for tuning in to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Today we venture into the world of AI. More and more it's becoming a regular part of our lives. We hear about how we can use artificial intelligence when it comes to preventing wildfires. A new Surfrider Foundation report shares the results of coastal water testing around our state and points to where the most polluted beaches are. And a nearly 100-year mystery has finally been solved. How a little bee from Australia managed to establish itself 2,000 miles away in Polynesia. Plus, we hear about an effort to map World War II shipwrecks in Micronesia, vessels that ended up on the ocean floor as payback for the Pearl Harbor attack. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lawmakers are looking at every tool in the toolbox to prevent future wildfires, given what we saw in Lahaina. And that includes using artificial intelligence. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Poe joins us to talk about this latest technology in firefighting. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this. How is this being used? Yes, so... I've been monitoring different strategies that lawmakers were proposing in the state legislature to make us more re- resilient to firefighters and make sure that we have prevention measures in place to avoid a situation that we saw last summer. And one of the bills that I came across, which has momentum in both the House and the Senate, would create a two-year program at the University of Hawaii to develop a wildfire forecasting system that is powered by artificial intelligence. And when I saw that, I was like, well, this just doesn't seem like something that we would be ready to do. This seems like a far in the future type of strategy for our state. But when I called up the UH computer science professor, Peter Sadowski, who does machine learning with climate change, he told me this is, in fact, not the stuff of science fiction. It's already happening. Yeah, it's actually funny that you contacted me just last Friday because uh, I was meeting with one of the atmospheric scientists here who wants to do exactly that, predict at least part of the, the equation, which is wind. The recipe for wildfires is dry areas with lots of brush that can catch fire easily, but also high winds. So one of the problems we've been looking at here is to use machine learning to help predict wind also precipitation, but that's kind of a separate, more difficult task. Um, So there's a bunch of research in the works of uh, interdisciplinary collaborations between computer scientists who specialize in machine learning and uh, the atmospheric scientists who specialize in the physics of uh, predicting weather. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, and these bills could jumpstart that work. So the university did testify on behalf of both bills. They say we support it. It would be great to get a boost from lawmakers to really power some of the things that we're already looking at and already doing. Peter Sadowski said he would personally raise his hand and volunteer to be involved. And he thinks that in that two-year timeline, we could realistically see something really useful for the state. And so is anyone doing this anywhere else? When I looked into it, There are several programs across the United States, specifically in the Western states where we see more wildfires that are employing AI in different ways to prevent wildfires or at least detect them before they turn into really devastating blazes. One is with the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, CAL FIRE for short. They've partnered with the University of California at San Diego to start an AI-powered fire detection plan And that's been in the work for two years. It had a full rollout in August. And Hmm. the way it works is they have cameras placed on remote mountaintops that take panoramic photos every two minutes. AI then scans each of those photos and it looks for differences. And if the system detects changes between the photos, it will alert a human to confirm whether or not that there is a difference and if it's a sign of a fire like smoke. And Assistant Chief Andy Emmerich says that this has been a big help in the early detection of wildfires. Since I want to say August or so, when we really started uh, going full steam ahead with the artificial intelligence, I can say that about 20% of our fires, we've found the artificial intelligence spotted the fire prior to the first 911 call or the first, uh, it first going into our dispatch system of the record. 
So about 20% of the time that that uh, artificial intelligence is, is beating the call into our dispatch system, which is pretty remarkable. That is remarkable. Wow. A little sentinel system. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and they say that early detection is really key to containment. They have a goal of keeping 95% of California's wildfires to 10 acres or less, less. So being able to have that head start to send emergency managers, emergency managers out to the scene can really, really make a difference. And it's not just happening at through universities. Startups are also getting into the action for wildfire surveillance. There's an organization called Pano AI. It's based in San Francisco. And it has placed similar cameras in over nine states and several places in Australia. And Pano CEO and founder Sonia Kastner says, this tech is actually more familiar than you might think. Many years ago, back in 2014, I was working at Nest, working on the Nest Cam, which is a home security camera that uses AI to tell the difference between an intruder and your dog. And the idea behind the Pano, uh, Pano solution is, is very much the same. Sometimes there's a perception that you know, wildfire technology is cutting edge R&D, but actually we're taking technologies that were developed for other industries and we're just bringing it into the wildfire and emergency management space. Yeah, it's amazing how fast the technology is changing and all the advances that are being made. Absolutely. There is one big caveat to seeing programs like these, cameras set up in remote areas, being a a solution we could implement, say, tomorrow in Hawaii, and that's connectivity. So both Pano AI and the CAL FIRE programs rely mainly on 5G, and Hawaii's connectivity just isn't there yet. Um, But Sonia says there's still a ton of different ways that AI could be a part of our strategy in the future. So for example, there are companies that are doing spread modeling, where once a fire has started, they will use data and AI to simulate which direction a fire will spread and how quickly it will get there. There's companies that are using satellite data and AI to assess where is the highest fuels risk and where should be the priorities for fuels reduction. There are companies that are using um, camera data and AI to look for a problem on a power line even before a fire has started. So we're lucky to be part of an ecosystem of of exciting innovators in um, wildfire mitigation. Yeah, that really is, it is, it's very exciting, you know, the innovation that is developed because of a need. Exactly. And when I talked to Andy about this, he said that the solutions that we have for how we approach wildfires have to change because the problem is really changing. He said between 2018 and 2021 in California, they saw a huge change in how wildfires were behaving. Fires that used to burn, you know, a thousand acres in a day were now burning 10,000 to 20,000 to even in some instances 100,000 acres in a day. So they really need every tool they can get in order to combat the spread of really devastating wildfires. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, because, you know, we have heard conversations about using um, wastewater, you know, to help with firefighting. Uh, You know, it's like, how do we just... Uh, like you said, use every tool, you know, what do we have on the ground and how can we best repurpose uh, some of these tools to um, to save lives and property? Yeah. And another benefit of having better AI weather forecasting in Hawaii is that little things like our weather apps might actually work better, says Peter Sadowski with the University of Hawaii. The weather apps that we have now, you know, you get that two-week forecast that's powered by these big, expensive, government-run simulations. And those just don't have a good idea, a good understanding of what's happening on the local level at Hawaii, which leads to that phenomenon of, you know, your weather app says it's raining, but you look outside and it's totally blue skies. So in addition to helping us prepare for disaster, this kind of work might also let you know whether or not you need to bring an umbrella on your way out the door. Well, you know, uh, any sense as to when a, a program could be ramped up? So the university said that this is a significant undertaking and they would really appreciate support from the state legislature. Um, The Senate bill is the one that's moved the farthest. That's passed ways and means in the House. So if we see one of those bills make it all the way through, we could be seeing a program like this in the next couple of years. Mm, Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. 
Thank you. We have been talking with HBR's Savannah Harriman-Pote about using artificial intelligence for wildfire protection. HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HPR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org/jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Surfrider Foundation Hawaii released its Blue Water Task Force Water Quality Report this week. Water samples from 65 shoreline sites on Kauai, Maui, and Oahu were collected by volunteers. The samples were then tested for the presence of Enterococcus uh, fecal bacteria, which indicates human or animal waste in the water. Exposure to waters with high levels of the bacteria and other pathogens can make people sick, particularly keiki and kapuna. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with the foundation's Hawaii regional manager, Lauren Bickley, about the most polluted beaches in our state and other results of the 2023 report. So how do you know where the fecal matter is, is coming from? You know, how do you know the difference if it's animal or human waste in the water? Because, it, you know, I think it seems reasonable that with the amount of wild animals that we have on our islands, you know, I think we reasonably know that their waste is eventually going to make it into streams and oceans. But if we can tell that there's a high amount of human waste in the water, that seems to indicate there's something really wrong. How are you able to tell the difference between the two? There are a number of different ways that you can tell the difference. But have we, as a nonprofit and even as, you know, the state clean water branch been able to do that is... No, not necessarily in a lot of cases, but I'll break this down a little bit. There are different tests that you can do, like a DNA indicator test, for example. So you could take a sample and ship it to a lab. It's about $125 a pop. And that will give you like a yes, no of like human or dog or pigs. Like there's a, a, a list of animals that it will tell you yes or no. And that's like a quick and easy way to say, okay, well, we have that at least can rule out XYZ or these specific contributors at this specific site for this one sample that we took. But what our Kauai chapter did do, and they just published this study, and we share this in our Blue Water Task Force report this year, is they did a sucralose study of 24 different streams throughout the island. And sucralose is an artificial sweetener. So pigs, cattle, other animals are not ingesting sucralose. It's humans. We're eating this. And then it passed pretty much unchanged through our digestive tract. So what goes in comes out the same. And it's been used in other places as a good indicator, therefore, of wastewater. And so the Kauai chapter, on top of their regular blue water task force sampling and inner caucus sampling, went to these streams that have these consistently chronic issues with inner caucus took sucralose samples and found that for the majority of the streams, they were finding sucralose quite often. And the streams that had elevated intercaucus also had elevated sucralose. So that was a very strong connection to, okay, what's happening in this particular stream, in this particular watershed? And if you go up, for example, upstream of Navilivili, it's cesspools. All of those areas and homes are on cesspools. So it's not necessarily a direct link. There's ways to get that direct link. 
and, and things like tracer dive studies to understand different sources of contamination. But it is that next step in saying, we know that it's in this particular watershed at this particular site is probably strongly linked to the cesspool activity. I think that what we've been trying to do with our data and, and consistently coming out with these reports, again, if we can identify sort of your problem watersheds or your problem sites, that next step is to start going upstream and figuring out the problems and from there creating those solutions. I had the chance to look through the report, and at first glance, it kind of appears that Kauai and Oahu are particularly impacted by high levels of enterococcus in waterways, and Maui seems to not be as impacted. What do those numbers really say? Well, one thing about our Maui sites is from 2017 up through 2023, our Maui chapter was only sampling along the North Shore area. And so we've had limited data for South Shore and no data for the West Side. We had some data for HANA sites, which we're also continuing to gather. I think a lot of that for the North Shore of Maui and, and something that we discussed a little bit, it's such a high wave and energy area. And we have a very different geography in those areas of stream flow. But if you do have these very heavy rain events, they're typically going to flush out. Like those coastal areas are going to flush out pretty quickly because you have the rain overlapped with a lot of large swell events versus areas like Kihei and certain areas along West Maui that maybe get trapped in bays where you have these big groundwater events, these big sedimentation events, and then it can just kind of get stuck. So particularly South Maui right now, during the winter months, you're not seeing a lot of south swell activity, but you're getting these big rains that are flushing down the watershed and then everything's getting stuck and it just kind of sits there. So then you have time to go out and when you're collecting the samples, you, you can see that. So that was probably too much information. <laughs> <laughs> Why our, our Maui data looks a little bit different yeah. is because we're limited in geographical scope with Maui. But each of the watersheds is also very different on the different islands. The amount of rain, where cesspools and potential human populations overlap with the different streams. And we have a lot of long-term more long-term data for Kauai and Oahu than we do for Maui. So Ma right now, Maui, we're in a, a place of expanding to the south and west side and getting more data sites so we can have a more complete picture of what the, the coastal situation is on Maui. I know that monitoring of waters off the coast of Lahaina is ongoing to understand what impacts the recent wildfires are having is there anything the Blue Water Task Force has learned recently about impacts to Lahaina waters? Well, interestingly enough, we did go out on January 10th and we did pull samples from along the Lahaina burn zone. And this was also overlapped with a very large rain event. We had a smaller rain event in December in the Lahaina area, but this could be really be considered the first flush event. It was like four to six inches within a really a couple hour time period. So it was quite a heavy rain event. And we actually had a couple of sites in that Lahaina area, more on the, the very north side of, of Lahaina by Mala, that did exceed state health standards for Anaracaucus, which was interesting just given the population, right, that is not living there as you normally would. And all of the changes that, that have happened along that landscape. So that was kind of surprising, but again, it was a very big first flush storm. So maybe everything that had been sort of sitting in the watershed since the last big rain event, probably about a year or so ago, all flushed in and flushed down. Now, of course, that did not tell us anything about fire specific contaminants. So at the same time we were pulling intercaucus samples on January 10th, we also were pulling samples for a, a whole list of heavy metals and other post-fire related contaminants. Those had to be shipped off to a lab in California that has the capability to run all of those tests. And we are hopefully gonna get those within the results within the next two days. We've almost, we did like almost six weeks, I think now. And kind of an interesting side note to that is because of all of these atmospheric rivers that have since hit the West Coast in California, this lab has been 
very backed up processing all of the samples for the state and local departments in California who are pulling their water quality samples. So it's been an interesting system to sort of navigate. And we did have post-fire related testing and we are really interested in, in getting the results back and seeing what we find. Is there a short list of places the public needs to stay away from or, you know, how can the public stay informed on where these high concentrations or high levels of enterococcus are? So one of the easiest ways to quickly check your enterococcus levels at different beaches before you go is bwtf.surfrider.org. And from there, you can pick your island and you can see our results and the most recent results, typically sampling once a month on Maui and Kauai, and then every other week on Oahu. Another great option is to sign up for the alert through the Department of Health's Clean Water Branch. And so you can actually receive both brown water alerts and emailed alerts when beaches have high bacteria advisories issued. And so they will send those out via email, which is also very helpful. And you can get on that email list. I would definitely say with a couple of these stream mouths, particularly on Kauai, where we have Hanama'ulu, Molo'a'a, and Navilivili stream, those have consistently chronically tested high for fecal indicator bacteria for enterococcus. Now, really, really stream even making our Surfrider National like top 10 dirtiest wow. beaches. And again, we're talking about the, the stream out there. So if you go to far ends of the beach, you're going to be further away and there's more of a dilution factor. But just being really cautious in some of these areas, particularly on Kauai and, and a couple of the areas that we highlight on Oahu such as Kahalu'u has been a big one. Haleiwa Beach Park, not Haleiwa Ali'i, but the beach park on the other side with the playground called Chocolates. That's also consistently tested very high. And it's another place where we have a lot of families and, and kids playing. We try as our surfrider groups, we pull our samples and then we post and send out a newsletter to our newsletter subscribers on each island. That data within about 24 hours of pulling the sample. So we try to get the information out there as quickly as possible because the most important part of our program is ensuring that our ocean users can make informed decisions about where it's safe to get in the water. Lauren Blickley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Russell. And that was Surfrider Foundation Hawaii's Lauren Blinkley talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the 2023 Blue Water Task Force Water Quality Report. We'll have a link to it on the conversation page of our website later today. This week's performance for HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series is sold out. Mahalo for your support. This performance will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on live performances at our Atherton studio, sign up for our free email newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Arne and Ruth Werchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Werchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Libraries Kona at folkhawaii.com.
Since the 1960s, bee scientists have been baffled by one of the preserved specimens in the Bishop Museum. The species uh, is known as Tuamotu's mass bee and was found in French Polynesia in the 1930s. Its scientific name is, and let's see if I get this right, Hylaeus tuamotuensis. It was found, um, or it was it. Its uh, nearest known relatives at the time lived in Australia, New Guinea, and New Zealand. So just how did that bee travel nearly 2,000 miles across the open ocean to end up on a handful of Pacific islands? Well, the new scientific study resolves that long-standing mystery. It also documents eight newly discovered species of mass bee in Fiji, Micronesia, and Polynesia. Maddie Bender just joined the conversation team, and she talked to lead study author James Dory. The Bishop Museum actually hosts a lot of specific invertebrates and bees. It's been a place that a lot of stuff has been accessioned over the years. The mysterious Halleus tumultuensis was initially collected in the 1930s on an expedition, actually by someone who at the time I think was an undergrad student, which is pretty cool. So it was, I think... In the 60s, that Charles Michener ended up describing the species finally from that collection. So there are only three specimens of it. And he was at the time quite confused as to how it got to French Polynesia because the closest bees in the same genus, Hylaeus, were thousands of kilometers away in a few directions. So either in Hawaii or New Zealand or Australia, that's a long way for a very tiny bee to go. I've done a lot of work in CG, so I'm very interested in the Pacific. And one of the cool things about the Pacific is obviously how do things get where they are and they have to cross, you know, huge oceans. And so with the help of genetic sequencing, collecting a lot of these specimens, you were able to solve this mystery. So wrap it up for us. Tell us uh, how, how the bees ended up all the way out in French Polynesia. We were working with some collaborators, so one who works in French Polynesia, the Beaumage, and another who's working at the Bishop Museum in Hawaii, Carl Manyaka. We basically built a family tree, which shows that um, there were two major groups between those islands, uh, four species in Fiji, in one group, and in the other group had two each from Fiji and French Polynesia. Both of them are really closely related. Um, and because uh, the group isn't found in Hawaii, but it is found in New Zealand and Australia, it's most likely that those bees came from there. And the simplest answer is that they probably island hopped from Australia and Papua New Guinea through Vanuatu to Fiji. But of course, because they're found in both Fiji and French Polynesia, which is still like, you know, two or 3,000 kilometers apart, something like that. There's a whole bunch of island groups and archipelagos in between. So the most likely option is actually that they rafted. So basically, when I've been in Fiji, there have been big rain and wind events and cyclones, uh, and that can you know, push a lot of plant material and wood out from top of the trees or from the ground and to the rivers and out into the ocean. And those masses of you know, debris basically make giant rafts. And because these bees nest in wood, you know, it's very likely that some of those just got caught up. Um, it makes sense that they wouldn't have done the whole trip in one go, but they're probably hopping between islands, setting up populations and eventually moving on to the next one. If someone pictures a bee, they might think of the honeybee, the bumblebee. But at least in Hawaii, there's a species of Hylaeus that a lot of people might be familiar with called the yellow-faced bee. The yellow-faced bees are the same group. Um, so the ones in Hawaii and in French Polynesia and Fiji. They're tiny, first of all. So they're smaller than a grain of rice and a short grain of rice at that. Most of them are like black and they're quite slender. They're not very hairy compared to, say, the bumblebee or European honeybee. Um, and that's because they don't collect pollen on the scopa, like the hairs on their legs or whatever, to bring it back to the nest. They actually ingest it and regurgitate it later. 
which sounds gross, but, you know, it's a successful strategy, I suppose. And most of them have those yellow face markings. We're often out there collecting uh, in villages or around villages. And, of course, people are really curious, like, what are you up to and what are you doing and what are you finding? And um, you'd be like, oh, we're catching bees. And they're like, oh, really? And they're like, yeah, look, here's, here's one of your native bees. They're like, no, that's a fly. So, yeah, I mean, it, they're just not in our search image, I guess, for what a bee should be. The other cool thing about these bees compared to, say, the European honeybee, so the European honeybee, as well as the other group of native bees in Fiji, are super generalist pollinators. So they'll pollinate basically anything that's there. They'll go and get pollen and nectar from whatever they can. It seems like so far these Hylaeus aren't doing that. I mean, we've got so few actual like records that it's hard to know. Um, but so far they've only been found in the canopy, but also they've only been found on red flowering plants, which is interesting because bees aren't thought to be able to see red. It's hard to know if what they're doing is actually strange being in the canopy. I'm starting to think it's more of an us problem, you know, the researchers and people have our own biases. So most of the time we're using pretty short one or two meter long nets, which means you can sample along the ground and maybe a little bit above your head. So the methods that we used to find these were basically using uh, really long nets. So first of all, a five meter and then 11 meter net. And I started to do that in Australia for this exact reason. I was sampling and in Australia, um, a lot of the vegetation is dominated by gum trees which are very tall. Oftentimes, I couldn't reach any of the flowers or just, like, the flowers along the bottom. But I could look up and see, you know, bees buzzing around everywhere. So a longer net was the obvious answer. Um, and once we brought that to Fiji, it seemed like that pattern was repeated, that there are, you know, some species that are only found up there, in this case, an entire radiation of bees hiding from us just above our heads. And yeah, so it kind of also begs the question then of what happens if we start sampling in the canopy more broadly throughout the tropics and elsewhere. I mean, I guess we just don't really know what's up in the trees. It might be that some really rare species are actually really common and they're just rarely collected outside of the canopy and, and there is some evidence for that already. You also mentioned in the paper sampling bias with respect to the Pacific. What has the history been of species discovery here, and why has it been so overlooked? I mean, there's lots of things going on in the Pacific that, that make species discovery really difficult. I was talking to Thibault Ramage, one of our collaborators, recently, um, because, you know, Hylaeus tomatoensis hasn't been collected again since the 1930s when it was initially collected. And so that's led some people to think, hey, maybe this species is extinct. But, you know, he says that basically no one's really gone on expeditions. On top of the problems with getting collectors out in the field, I, I think species discovery is just difficult, which is why it'd be really great to work with people living in the Pacific and, and Fiji and stuff and, and train them up because, you know, they're there, they can be much more effective than, than we can visiting, you know, once or twice a year. <laughs> mm -hmm. It seems like a large part of this story does center around museum collections and this idea that you can enter a species into a bank and then you move on in your research. Years, decades go by, we've forgotten, and it takes a whole new scientific team to look at it with new methods and technologies. What do you think are the lessons that independent researchers can take from this whole story? A lot of it is around questioning how we do things um, beyond the actual story of the, the bees themselves. I mean, from the very beginning, how do, we, how do we collect? For me, I do a lot of active sampling. I don't do that much passive sampling. So most of the time I'm out there with a net. Uh, often I'm using a short net, but more and more now I'm bringing along a really long net and then awkwardly using it when I've got short flowers nearby. <laughs> um, all of these methods have their own biases. Um, and it can be really hard to know what those biases are, but questioning that can be quite useful. It seems like the coolest part of discovering a new species is that then you get to name it. It is a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> there's so much work that comes before naming a species. Like I've, I've already got them all there and 
is almost the last step of like, okay, what do I call it? You try and make it um, meaningful either in terms of what they look like, where they came from, or or something else with meaning imbued behind it. So, Haleus Deli, actually, I didn't suggest that name. One of my collaborators, Liv Davies, did. Uh, The Veli are basically this folklore being from Fiji, um, often described as short but very powerful men that live in the forest. And they can either be really nice, so there are stories of them, you know, curing diseases, or they can be, you know, a little bit vengeful or wrathful, for example, if you messed with their favorite tree was one of the stories. So, yeah, we, we talked to our collaborator at the University of South Pacific and our friends in Navai Village, and they both thought that uh, the name was cool and fitting. So, yeah, we got to name one of the species after some... Fijian folklore, which is which is really nice, and and of course, then as I wrote in the etymology section of the paper, like it kind of is meant to infer this sense of responsibility for looking after the forests and looking after these, you know, hopefully benevolent animals, and you know, maybe if you don't, there's, there'll be consequences for that. You don't want the bees coming after you. No, you do want the bees coming after you. If they're gone, it's really sad. <laughs> True. You're completely right. I don't think yeah. they're too vengeful. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that was University of Wollongong scientist James Dory talking with HBR's Maddie Bender. Dory's study was published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution earlier this week. When you support HPR, you support community reporting about community issues. It's been more than eight years since a group of families from Haena Kauai established the Haena Community-Based Subsistence Fishing Area. The community creates rules regulating catch limits, size limits, species limits, and more. With your support, HPR brings you voices from our island communities. It's a tool that makes sure that we can keep on practicing and fishing the way we did and not excluding folks but saying like hey if you like come fish in this area this is how we fish this is how we take this is how much we take it's got to be community driven got to be from the people of the place they know their place better than anybody support local reporting on hpr donate at hawaiipublicradio.org This week's Mono Minute is a showstopper, and we're talking about the peacock. You'll easily recognize these magnificent birds on sight, but are you familiar with their song? Well, we've got that for you today, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's your Mono Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo biologist Patrick Hart. Male Indian peafowls, or peacocks, are among the most recognizable birds in the world. Native to southern India and Sri Lanka, they were first brought to Hawaii in the mid-1800s, and peacocks and peahens have now become established on all the main Hawaiian islands. They can live in a variety of habitats, including neighborhoods, parks, and woodlands, and with their omnivorous diet, eat a range of foods including fruits, grains, insects, and even small vertebrates like lizards and koki frogs. In addition to being so visually unique, the songs of peacocks are also very distinctive. Many people in Hawaii have heard their song, even if they may not know it was a peacock making it. The reason why peacocks have such massive, iridescent, and beautiful tails has been a source of wonder for centuries. We usually assume that most characteristics of animals have evolved to make them better adapted to surviving in their environment. But how could such a large, showy tail improve a peacock's chance of survival? Even Charles Darwin, after publishing his theory of natural selection, famously said that looking at a peacock's tail made him sick because natural selection cannot explain it. 
This over time led him to propose a second theory known as sexual selection, which is now widely accepted and holds that showy ornaments on animals, such as the peacock's tail, have evolved through selection by females. In other words, females choose those males with the largest, prettiest tails, and those are the ones that pass on their genes to the next generation, while the males with the less showy tails may get no matings at all. This often happens in mating arenas known as lex, where multiple males all come together in a group competition to show off their tail ornaments to choosy females. Over time, the tails evolve to be showier and showier because that's what the females want. Peacocks are known as pikake in Hawaiian, and they have an important connection with Hawaiian royalty. Ka'iulani was so taken by the birds, she became known as the peacock princess. When a new sweet-scented species of jasmine flower was imported to Hawaii, Ka'iulani fell in love with that as well, and named it after her favorite bird. Pikake are still one of the most common flowers for lei across the islands, and it's said that the night Ka'iulani died in 1899 at the age of 23, her peacocks screamed so loud they could be heard for miles away. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. Payback for Pearl Harbor, that is how Chuk Lagoon became a watery graveyard for scores of shipwrecks and Japanese aircraft. The Micronesian islands of Chuk, or Truk, had become a strategic, uh, key strategic sea pain and submarine camp for Japan during World War II. The U.S. bombed the base uh, in t- retaliation for the attack on Pearl Harbor, and when it was all over, some 5,000 Japanese soldiers and 1,000 Chukese villagers were killed. Now, thanks to a grant from the American Battlefield Protection Program, work will begin on mapping a group of sunken ships that were never surveyed. William Jeffrey is an archaeology professor at the um, University of Guam who is spearheading the expedition to explore the wrecks and to include the islander stories about this battle in the Pacific. Chukese people have been living there for about 2,000 years and have had several colonial rulers from the Spanish, the Germans, Japanese and the and the Americans, uh, is mainly during the Japanese period, some from 1914 to 1945, that had the biggest impact on Chukis people, mainly because of the build-up to the war. The war really started when the bombing started in February 1944. The Americans regarded Chuk, or Truk as it's called then, as the equivalent to their Pearl Harbor. So it was seen as a very important strategic base that on their road back to sort of pushing the Japanese back into Japan, they wanted to neutralize the base. So they actually, one time, they thought of actually dropping an atomic bomb on, in June 1944, but they found that the bombing that they'd done in February had neutralized it fairly well, so they didn't do that, thankfully. But they sent in wave after wave. It was actually 10 times more aircraft than they... Japanese sent into Pearl Harbor and bombed it in February 44, then again in April, May 44, and then subsequently for the next sort of year and a half from B-24, B-29s from the Marshall Islands to sort of keep it neutral because the Americans were wanting to fight and push the Japanese out of the Philippines and then back into Japan. They wanted to neutralize this with a big base that they called uh, Truck Lagoon. So it was promoted as a payback in all the press after the bombing as a payback to Pearl Harbor. And the Chukis were, well, greatly impacted. Many people lost their lives. They were pushed away from their homes, their home islands. You know, they lost their land. They lost uh, their cultural identity because their land is essentially part of their cultural identity. You know, we share that feeling here in Hawaii as well as it is for many Pacific Islanders. So during that time, I'm reading that there are 1,000 Chukis who died and 5,000 Japanese troops? Yes, that's correct. There's probably about 40,000 troops 
Japanese troops and civilians and construction workers and about 10,000 Chukis living there at the time. Many of the Japanese, about 4,000 died on the ships at worst. So about 50 to 60 ships, although around the whole of the lagoon, outside about 110 ships altogether during the war were sunk in and around truck. And it was the, the bombing in February and then May 1944 was the greatest merchant ship loss by the Japanese up until that time in the war. It remains one of the most significant loss of merchant ships. The Japanese were aware that the Americans were looking at bombing because they sent scout planes over a few um, days before. So they they pushed their big battleships and their Navy ships back to Palau. But the merchant ships were still unloading. They were sort of ferrying cargo to Chuk or on its way to Rabaul with other places down south for their sort of guarding against the American fighting. So there were many, many merchant ships with... Well, and sailors and soldiers coming there to help defend the base that uh, went down with the ships and equipment, cargo planes that went down. Over 350 aircraft were destroyed and only a handful of those had actually been found. So there's many more of those that could be found, you know, along with the missing in action people that the pilots went down with them. And there's a, a number of people, a number of, American and Japanese groups are still looking for those planes for possibly that uh, could find human remains with them. Well, this project that you're undertaking now, you're going to be surveying three new shipwrecks that we don't know much about? Most of the big ships are known in Chukla Lagoon, but I came across my research many years ago about three smaller ships, so they're a bit away from the main concentration of shipwrecks. So I want to look for them, and that'll give us an idea of the flora and fauna has been there and has been there for some time, whereas the other shipwrecks visited by people and um, by tourists, and sometimes they interfere with uh, what's remaining. Dynamite fishing has been carried out on these shipwrecks because, they, as I said, they carry lots of um, munitions and lots of stores as well, and so the, um, dynamite fishing has been carried out, and that stripped the corals off of uh, a lot of these ships and impacted the, the fauna of the fish too. So to find these new shipwrecks, it would be quite interesting to see, you know, what's on them because part of our work is looking at the marine biology work and the ecology, the broader sort of part of the biology of these shipwrecks because one of the things the FSM national government are, are looking at maybe uh, nominating this area for World Heritage Listing and they want to look at not just the cultural aspect, but the, the natural flora and fauna. Many of the divers that have been coming there for years since, you know, in the 1970s. So it's a, it's a wonderland of flora and fauna. Uh, you know, it, it is. It's just a beautiful place to dive. 30 degrees Celsius down to, well, 40 metres, um, 150 feet or so, 28 degrees maybe the coldest Celsius, not Fahrenheit, so it's still pretty warm, 80, uh, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's uh, clear water, and with all this flora and fauna, it's just a fantastic, beautiful place, apart from the, the historical, you know, the war remains. And, um, you know, here are divers coming back and feeling quite teary about it because, it, it, you know, you go there and it's still, ships are sitting upright. You can get the emotion of... Um, you see all the sake bottles or beer bottles and you swim inside and uh, see the cabins and, and there used to be some human remains there that you could see but they've most of them have been taken away now and had the ceremonies so you don't see much of them there but you you can get a strong sense of association with the, with the war and the people when you die of the ships. Yeah, I mean, it is a watery graveyard, and you have to give it the respect uh, that it deserves, you know, for the lives that were lost deep in the ocean. And so, yeah, mapping out these areas where there's little known, it just helps our knowledge about that area. The main things we're doing, while we work on the shipwrecks, we're concentrating a fair bit on the land, on the terrestrial, because the 18, 19 high volcanic islands inside the lagoon, and they all had military remains on them, and, and many of them were bombed. But the main island, Tonawas, that had something like 1,200 Japanese buildings on it during the war. Um, you know, seaplane base, repair base, uh, a floating dock, submarine base. You know, had, there was a, um, a five airstrips in Chuk altogether. A little island nearby, Eton, was one of its major airstrips there. 
So there was a, a lot of infrastructure built on these islands. So there used to be when divers come and dive the wrecks that they could then go off to Tonawas and look at this. But during COVID, things shut down and no one came. There was no dive tourism in, in Chuuk at that time. And the jungle took over and the mayor, I mean, working closely with the mayor, Tonawas Cradvin Hasek, and also runs the Blue Ragoon Resort, he wants to try and revive, you know, this aspect of um, the tourism, the cultural tourism. And it, it, it gives people on the island a sort of a connection, too, with people coming there and uh, they can get involved with uh, the tourist and, I mean, they can help each other out. There's many also Japanese tourists that go there and pay their respects to their fallen ancestors. There's memorials associated with the brother of the Emperor Hirohito who went there in 1928. There's other memorials to Japanese uh, people. So many sort of tourists used to go there and not so many now. And so we, we want to sort of help revive that aspect of it. But we also want to, which is very important, we want to, to say in our interpretation how the Chukis, you know, the traditional sites, the sacred sites, the, I mean, the spiritual sites, were impacted by the war, and not to leave them out of this sort of context. When they do this sort of thing, they look at the Japanese and American or maybe Australian sites, if there are, you know, the protagonist stuff. But they don't think about, well, what about local people? They were greatly impacted by the war, and it wasn't their sort of war. So innocent sort of people. So we want to bring that out in our work, uh, and that's on the islands not so much in the water, although there's sort of natural reef that would have sacred connection, you know, traditional connection that we, we could bring out as well, but mostly on the the island. So it's a combination of the underwater shipwreck work, the marine biology, finding some new sites, and this sort of what's on the islands, the tr- Japanese sites and, and the Chukis traditional sites that we, we want to portray this is a holistic heritage from World War II, not just one or two aspects. We've been hearing from William Jeffrey, archaeologist with the University of Guam, who, thanks to a grant from the American Battlefield Protection Program, will begin mapping three previously unknown shipwrecks from World War II. You know, at that time, Chuuk was taken over by Japan, where they established a seaplane and submarine base, which was bombed by the U.S. in retaliation for the Pearl Harbor attack. Jeffrey says when he arrived there in Micronesia in 2001 from Australia, he realized that the stories of the islanders' perspectives were often overlooked, and he hopes this research will make that point of view more widely known to those who visit Micronesia. go now, but up tomorrow, the Monarchy Authority announced the selection of a familiar face to be its first executive director. It is former tourism CEO John DeFries. Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.